Welcome to the Project Zion podcast. This podcast explores the unique spiritual and theological gifts Community of Christ offers for today's world. Welcome to Cup of Joe here at Project Zion podcast, where we explore the people, places, and events of Restoration history. So pour yourself a cup of coffee and say hello to our guide on these adventures, our director of Community of Christ Church Historic Sites, Lachlan McCoy. Lachlan Hello, hello Karen. So it's good to be with you again. Now today we have a little bit different of an interview because we will be visiting with someone from the LDS tradition. It is Brian Andreessen, who is the curator of the LDS Church History Museum in Salt Lake City. Have you been to this museum? I have been to the museum. I love it. I'd like to spend a lot more time there, but it is just filled with treasures. And I uh, I love their exhibits, their interactive nature, and just things that I have read about or seen photos of my entire life. And then to actually see the object in person is particularly thrilling for me. I love the way the story comes alive when you see the real thing. Well, it is a marvelous museum. I had the opportunity to be there uh, once before. Have you met Brian? I have met Brian. He's been a longtime friend. He's one of my favorite people. But I knew him in his former life uh, when he was with the Lincoln Museum in Springfield, Illinois. And so Brian is an expert on Abraham Lincoln. Uh, and uh, I love his book, Lincoln and Mormon Country. It's part of the Looking for Lincoln in Illinois series. And he explores the complicated relationships between uh, the politicians in Springfield in the 1840s and the Latter-day Saints and all of the numerous connections. And frustratingly, the one connection that he can't quite make is we, we want to get Joseph Smith Jr. and Abraham Lincoln in the same room together. <laughs> <laughs> and it, it, it's possible they might have been at the same party together, but just possible. And so it, it's kind of fun um, to have Brian help address uh, all these wild stories that circulate about Joseph and Abraham Lincoln. We can get, it seems, Joseph and Mary Todd Lincoln together in a courtroom in what's now the Lincoln Herndon Law Office mm-hmm. in Springfield. But Brian has done an amazing job of helping us sort out all these possible connections. And I just, I just, I'm a huge fan of his work. So when I was able to visit the museum and um, Brian was kind enough to take us through it on a tour, I noticed that it had that wonderful, interactive, user-friendly, making history exciting and accessible feel that was to me, reminiscent of the Lincoln Museum and Library in Springfield, which I've been to a couple of times. And I mentioned it to Brian, and he did say with kind of um, a very humble um, smile, well, that would be because he worked on that museum. (laughs) (laughs) I love it. Yeah, you can see his fingerprints all over it. We can. We can. So the museum in Salt Lake covers um, the early years of Mormon history, and we share 14 of those years with LDS tradition. We share more than that in some weird, complicated ways as well, but we officially share those 14 um, year, first 14 years. So what might we discover about the story of what we call Restoration History, our story of the church? 
that would look differently from an LDS telling of it than from a community of Christ perspective? What might, might we see in, in the museum that would look different? You know, because the museum is so new, although there probably are some differences, particularly uh, when it comes to succession in Nauvoo and perhaps the role of plural marriage in that, what really struck me are the things that might look similar. And what really stood out was the uh, the movie on Joseph's experience in the Sacred Grove, what we typically think of now as the first vision. And so for so long, both churches um, lifted up the 1838 account of the first vision. You know, two personages, this is my beloved son, hear him. And we use that to convert people. So it wasn't that we were converting people based on any experience they had, but we were converting people based on Joseph's conversion experience. Now, in Community of Christ, long ago, we began to move away from that because of that difficulty. We'd have anti-Mormons come along or folks not friendly to the church and share other versions of that conversion experience, and it could be devastating to the new member. And so um, long ago in Community Christ, we, we moved away from that and really would emphasize Joseph's personal conversion. And more often the 1832 account, which is the only one in Joseph's hand, which it seems to be a, a vision of Jesus. In the LDS tradition in more recent years, because of that very problem, people finding other accounts and being devastated by that, uh, in the LDS church, they have also now began to talk about multiple accounts of the first vision. And so one of the very first interactive, well, it's a film that you can see in the new museum, uh, kind of blends all those accounts together and makes it clear that there were multiple accounts to help people process through that in a friendly, supportive setting, not an antagonistic setting. It's a beautifully made video, but tragically, I'm particularly sensitive to motion. I get car sick and, and seasick really easy. It, it was so interactive, I couldn't watch it. Oh. <laughs> Too much movement as Joseph's running <laughs> through the grove. <laughs> I had to close my eyes and put my head down and just listen. <laughs> but it, oh, we're learning so much more about you. <laughs> yeah, sorry. I know that's not our purpose here. But it's it's wonderfully done, and, and I think it, it's a nice way to help catch the general membership up um, and, and, and help them understand the complexities of our story in a, in a loving, caring way. And I, I just think that was really nicely done. That we're all learning together, regardless of which faith tradition. <laughs> Always. is ours. So was there anything you were surprised to see in the museum? Huh, probably if I had not known in advance that the first vision treatment, that would have been a surprise because that is a shift from where the LDS church has been in the past. Um, be sure you go upstairs if, the, if these exhibits are still there, and I think they are. They have some uh, amazing 19th century paintings of church mm-hmm. leaders and the telling of the story through visuals. I don't know anything about it, but I love it. And so it was just a thrill to see some of the original paintings that I have admired from afar for so long. Uh, you'll also see some objects that Community Christ has loaned to the LDS Church. Yeah, I was going to um, ask about that. Yeah, some Kirtland Temple, a Kirtland Temple window, um, as well as, um, this was actually probably a gift, a fisherman at Hans Mill years ago found a big chunk of metal from the original mill and tragically he stole it (laughs) um just he was not connected to either faith uh, but that eventually made its way into the collections of the lds church 
And we, um, as the owners of the property, gifted that to the LDS Church. So you'll see that mill face wheel, I think it's called, there in exhibit as well. So how did it come about that a window from the Kirtland Temple was uh, gifted to the museum? So that one is, is not a gift, but a loan on the window. And it predates me, but I'm guessing that there was a new exhibit um, previous to the current one um, being put together. And we had removed from Kirtland Temple in the 19, oh, I used to know the exact date, I've been gone from Kirtland too long, but it's probably the 60s, the original Gothic windows, because they didn't fit very tight anymore, and we put them in storage. And so simply we're simply sitting in storage. I'm, I'm guessing that an inquiry was made at one point from the LDS Church, and we were happy to oblige with the loan of one of those original windows. And it's it's a beautifully mounted exhibit now out there. Yes, it is. And, and uh, Brian was kind enough to point out to us that that had come a courtesy of Community of Christ, which was lovely. Yeah. Can you give me the name of uh, Brian's book again, Lincoln and? It's Lincoln and Mormon Country. Mormon Country. Absolutely. It's part of the Looking for Lincoln in Illinois series yeah. from Southern Illinois University Press. Okay. I have to put that in my uh, shopping cart here. <laughs> All right. So is there anything else um, that mentions Community of Christ or came from Community of Christ that we might see as we wander through the museum? Mm. I'm guessing that there are some manuscript materials that uh, we might have provided copies of, but but I didn't look closely enough on my last visit, so we'll have to do that. Yes, we'll have to check that out when we visit Brian. Okay, well, with that, we will get ready to go to the museum. Thanks, Locke. Enjoy. Today, we are recording at the Latter-day Saint Church History Museum in Salt Lake City, and we are visiting with Dr. Brian Andresen, who is the museum curator. Brian's been involved with other museums that you may have heard of, including one of my favorites, the Abraham Lincoln Presidential Museum in Springfield, Illinois. So, Brian, tell us a little bit about yourself, recognizing that some people may be familiar with your work and some may not. So, you are Dr. Andresen. How do you prefer to be addressed? Brian is my name, and that's what I like to hear. So, <laughs> Okay, we'll go with Brian. But what, what are your um, aspects of educational background? Well, I was born and raised in Logan, Utah, and I went to Utah State University for my undergraduate degree in history and economics. So I'm an Aggie, Utah State Aggie. I always cheer for the Aggies against the Utes and against the Cougars here in Utah. Uh, coming out of uh, college, I went to Cornell University back in Ithaca, New York, and earned a Juris Doctorate, a JD, and I practiced law in a large regional uh, law firm, Harder C. Christ and Emory in Rochester, New York, uh, long enough to pay off all of my Ivy League law school debts. Oh, my. <laughs> so I was there a little while, and, uh, you know, there's a lot of good things about being a lawyer, but it didn't really fit my my personality, and, uh, you know, it's... it's was a lot like selling insurance. You, you have to convince people why they need legal services and, and why you should be the one to give them services. And then you charge them a lot of money and it comes out of their pockets. And sometimes that can feel uncomfortable. And well, for a variety of reasons, I just didn't like being a lawyer. I, I loved the law. I liked the, the intellectual challenge of figuring out legal problems. But 
the human dimension of being a lawyer was something I just didn't enjoy. I'd have to account for every tenth of an hour of my life to my partners. And so when I would go to church or was a scoutmaster things, I'd have to chalk it up to client development. And, uh, you know, that got very tough. So my wife, recognizing that, that I was unhappy, uh, she volunteered and said, Brian, that you're not the guy I married. That law is not for us. Let's do what you really would like to do. You've always loved history. Uh, you got a JD because it seemed to be more practical rather than getting a PhD out of school. But let's go back and do what you really wanted to do. We don't need the rich lifestyle. And so I, I really thank my wife because a, lo- a lot of my colleagues, you know, uh, when I announced I was leaving the firm, came to me privately and said, you know, that they felt like they had golden handcuffs and their spouses uh, would not have approved of the step down, not just in economic status, but perceived step down in social status. And, you know, that that is a surprising thing, you know, le- leaving the practice of law, especially at a big law firm in New York where we were involved with a lot of uh, movers and shakers, both politically and, and, and business-wise in New York. You You come to assess your self-value based on those kinds of connections and that kind of world and not on really who you are. And then you worry more about money and, and things like that. And so I just left and uh, never looked back, never, never regretted having to account for every tenth of an hour to my partners about what I do. So I went to the University of Illinois at Urbana-Champaign uh, to, to get a degree in American history. The reason I went there is that their senior faculty member, Robert Johansson, was one of the deans of uh, Civil War, Jacksonian-era history. He was the great biographer of Stephen Douglas, had done the most important path-breaking work on the cultural history of the Mexican War. Just a delightful, old-school, traditional historian. And I worked under him. And I did a dissertation on a religious aspect of the Civil War, American Civil War, that had never been really studied or looked at. And that was religious dissent in the North against Lincoln and the Republicans and, and their war policies. It tended to be Democrats who were, who were good uh, evangelical Christians, but because they were voting the wrong way, their legitimacy as a Christian was questioned. And you had lots of churches during the Civil War in the North splitting on political lines, Democrat. And, and Republican, and many um, Democrat ministers lost their pulpit because they weren't, on Sunday, propagating a pro-war message. And so that the anti-war people, anti-war Democrats during the Civil War were known as copperhead after the poisonous snake. And so my dissertation was about copperhead preachers and this copperhead religious movement that arose in, in opposition to the mainstream Protestant uh, establishment, which were mostly backers of, of the Republicans and, and Lincoln's war policy. So that was a very interesting um, dissertation. A foretaste of our political climate today, Brian. <laughs> yeah, that, those are your words, Karen. That's a... <laughs> so I, as I was finishing, uh, one of the other students under Bob Johansson, Tom Schwartz, the Illinois State historian at the time, they were uh, in the process of creating the Abraham Lincoln Presidential Museum. And uh, somebody with my background was, was just what they needed to help them as they were conceptualizing not just the museum, but how the museum would be carried out into the public uh, beyond the walls of the museum. 
So I was hired out of graduate school after I got my PhD to help the president, the, the, the state agency that was creating the presidential library to get into um, historical tourism, cultural uh, historical tourism, where it would use historic sites, historic stories as a way to entice people to come to your locality and, and, and tour, learning about history. And so I was given the assignment of examining all the places around central Illinois where the Lincoln stories took place and trying to tie localities, which today are, are parking lots or modern buildings, and trying to help people imagine what those were like 150 years ago when Abraham Lincoln and his people, his generation of people were living. So I pioneered the Looking for Lincoln Heritage uh, Tourism Project, which um, work, working with uh, a lot of really good people there in Springfield, Illinois, we were able to get uh, Congress to designate uh, an entire swath of, of counties in Illinois as the Abraham Lincoln National Heritage Area. And so that got me into public history along with the museum and just was really a lot of and yeah, it's a I've marvelous. A talking, so. Well, it's a marvelous museum. I have been there a couple of times and enjoyed it each time. You also wrote a book, Looking oh. uh, for Lincoln in Illinois. It's in my Amazon book list, oh, yeah. waiting for Christmas this year. Yeah, well, one one of one of the things that uh, I was asked to do was to create some souvenir tourism guidebook related to themes within the Abraham Lincoln National Heritage Area. And so I actually did two two books in that series. Uh, one is Lincoln in Springfield, and it, it's, it's kind of a guidebook for people who go to the Presidential Library and the Lincoln Home and the Lincoln Tomb and those places in downtown Springfield. But it gives them a map and, and a designation of 50 other locations and stories where important Lincoln things happened. And you can walk around using that little tour book and imagine, you know, what life was like when Lincoln was there. And the second book in that series had to do with trying to tie Lincoln stories and Lincoln history with Mormon stories and Mormon history. Because Lincoln uh, was a contemporary in the 1830s and 1840s of, of Mormons who came to Illinois in 1839 and left in 1846. So there are a lot of interesting ways that people would never guess where Lincoln history intersects with Mormon history. So the second book, uh, again, it's kind of a guidebook that goes from Nauvoo on the west side of the heritage area and, and across the counties, the same trail that people that Joseph Smith and Abraham Lincoln used to travel between Hancock County and the state capital in Springfield, Illinois. So there are sections about Springfield, there are sections about Nauvoo, there are sections about broader Hancock County, and there are sections about counties and trails in between those two locations where Lincoln stories and Mormon stories intersected. So, well, I'm looking forward to reading that particular Yeah, that's a text. lot of fun. Lincoln and Mormon country. Yeah. So you said that um, your wife initiated the conversation of you leaving law and going back doing what you love. I, I think we owe her a debt of gratitude. <laughs> um, are you okay sharing her name here on Judy. our podcast, Judy? Yeah, so thank Judy. you. Yeah. Thank you Judy, for that, because we have some wonderful, um, not only texts, but museums that have been a blessing to us because of your decision. All right. So visiting with you earlier, you grew up in Logan, Utah. You were a raised LDS, and so it made sense you'd have an interest uh, Mormon history and that. 
How did you end up here, the curator of the museum here in Salt Lake City? I got a phone call from the person who was the director of the museum at that time, Kurt Graham. This would have been in late 2012, early 2013, sometime around in there. Um, he called me and said that they were going to do a major renovation of the LDS Church History Museum in City, and would I be interested in coming out and, and helping them as they renovated the museum. And I had been at the Presidential Museum in Springfield for almost 15 years and had been doing, had been able to experience most of the things that you know, I had hoped to be able to do there. Um, I had about 10 years in my career. I still had parents, and my wife had parents living out in Utah. We had married, ch married children with grandchildren living out here in Utah. And I decided, well, if I was ever going to make a change and do something different in, at the, in the twilight of my career, this would be the time. So I accepted the offer and came out here. And uh, boy, I'll tell you, it was, it, it was jumping into... Uh, into the water with, uh, with with the storm going on. They, they had made some initial decisions, and they were just really starting to get into things. And so I got here just at the time when uh, when when you're in the museum world and you're creating exhibits, it's kind of like being a trial lawyer. There's a period of really intense work and long hours and, and a lot of fun, and that's just when I came aboard. They had decided that, I should say probably that, Previous, you know, the, the, the Church History Museum here in Salt Lake was opened in 1984, and the original permanent exhibit in the museum, the, the permanent part of the museum, was a wonderful exhibit called uh, Covenant Restored, uh, and it took LDS history, Mormon history, from, from the beginning up through then, you know, the 1970s, early 1980s. And by the standards of the time, by the museum practices of the time, it was it was a marvelous. But you know, by 2010, 2012, 2013, it was dated, not necessarily in its message, but but in in the way the message was conveyed, because museums had had evolved in the way that they presented things. And so people had been used to having the entire Mormon history story presented in the museum. And when I got here, the decision had already been made that the, per, the permanent exhibit and the renovation was going to only cover the first 30 years of church history, just the Joseph Smith era, up through the, the end of the Nauvoo period, the building of the Nauvoo Temple, and the exodus of, of the majority of the saints and under the 12 apostles out to Utah. It wasn't going to go beyond that in the, in the initial story. And, and um, I think there were a couple of reasons for that. One was that the Restoration, the story of the Restoration uh, up through the Nauvoo period, is a universal story for all people that come from a Mormon tradition. And, and it related to Latter-day Saints and, and LDS church members worldwide, regardless of where they're born or what their tradition is, because it's the founding story of the faith. And, and once you get beyond that, it, it starts to become more regional. And, and although it's still very important and very, very interesting, if, if people are willing to study it, it's not as foundationally important as the rest. I, I don't know for sure, but I think that was one element in the decision. And the other was uh, the church history department at the time was conceptualizing a new written narrative history of the church. And they had conceived of it in kind of four volumes, four stages. The first volume would be the restoration up through the completion of the Nauvoo Temple. The second volume would 
follow the story of, of the LDS Church from the Exodus from Nauvoo up to the completion of the Salt Lake Temple in the 18, early 1890s. So it'd be kind of the Utah Mountain West Mormon pioneer story. Then volume three would be the church coming into the 20th century, and it would go up through the mid-1950s under President David O. McKay, and the worldwide scope of the church symbolized by the dedication of the Bern Switzerland temple in the 1950s. And then the fourth volume would be the contemporary church, uh, which would which concludes with multiple temples and small temples right. across the world. And so that was the conception uh, of the volumes. The first volume uh, of that series will be coming out. This others will come in the next couple of years. And the church history department had wanted the museum to kind of follow that model. And the idea would be that subsequent exhibits would then follow the narrative path of volumes two, three, and four. So for all of those reasons, the big renovation that's in the museum today uh, called The Heavens Are Opened ends with the 1846 Exodus on Vu, and that's how we got focused on. So that was, you, you need to rein me in. And, no, and no, I appreciate this. Because I, I'm I a little wander bit, all over the place. I'm a little bit of a history geek, so this is all wonderful um, information for me. And people do have a fascination with and a love for the founding Nori, whether they are LDS or Community of Christ, who are listeners. So I appreciate that. I wondered why it was period and how that decision was made. So restoration history, this early um, period, which is how our new history texts have been written as well, covers a portion of this story. It's connected to what you mentioned earlier, the greater story of United States history and frontier history and pioneer history across the board in the United States. So in looking at that, what was the process like to determine how the story of the church would be told in the midst of these contextual references and the swirling about of the very complex frontier history of the United States? Oh, it, it was it was hoped from the beginning that we would be able to place the founding story in a more contextual uh, outline. Uh, but it gets really tough in public history, in museums in particular. Uh, in a book, you can provide nuances and, 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 and provide for deeper context because the written page allows you to do that. The readers can pick and choose and take their time. When you're doing it at a museum, it, it has the potential of being overload. Uh, so you have to be careful about how you bring in the context. Uh, a really good example of that is is the actual beginning of the Restoration story, which is the religious context of early 19th century America, the Second Great Awakening. And if you want to put a general audience to sleep quickly, you know, start talking about uh, the theological and, and, and the cultural aspects of of a religious awakening that just doesn't resonate to modern audiences, certainly around the world and, and even more and more in, in, in the United States. People just aren't interested in religious history. So so how to grab people and, and create this kind of second great awakening context without using the verbiage and the intellectual concepts and the jargon that historians and sociologists and other people use is, is a challenge. And people like me who come from an academic background 
are always not at loggerheads, but but in creative tension with with graphic designers and and, and modern writers and people who, although they, they value the story, they're more interested in how the story is conveyed, you know, in in, right. in, in a way that will grab an audience. So we have to keep the integrity of the right. story and not lose people, but you also right. want the splash. Right of how people grasp the idea. So when, when you come into the exhibit, uh, we have what we have what we call the awakening wall. And you're not going to see the word second grade awakening. You're not going to hear that kind of that kind of language or even those kinds of lessons. What you're going to see are very short vignettes and, and ruminations from real people at the time who are grappling with the meaning of life, uh, the, the questions in at the culture of the time that they had, it, it is organized religion still of value? Uh, how do you know God? What about uh, you know c- contending theological and religious principles? It, that seems silly, and 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 so people are grappling with those kinds of questions, and you're hearing them. You're hearing a, a teenage Eliza R. Snow, a teenage Orson Pratt. Uh, a teenage Peter Cartwright, who's a Methodist minister who never becomes a Mormon, um, a, teen- a, a little bit older, in, in his 20s, a Richard Allen, uh, the African-American who became very important in, in the Methodist African church in the 1820s, 1830s. You're meeting all of these people in the early 18-teens as young people, as teenagers, and they're asking questions to themselves. So we're demonstrating the awakening, we're seeing individuals confronting the cultural turmoil of the Great Awakening, but we're not burdening people with with all of the historical uh, paraphernalia of, of, of how historians interpret that. And, and hopefully, if people listen to a couple of those, they get the idea. And most importantly, we hope that they might recognize that, wow, you know, questions that were important to people 200 years ago are still fundamentally, maybe in a little different context, in a little different way, but are still fundamentally important to people. Uh, so there is an example of, of the challenge of you know, bringing history, you know, academic history, and melding it with, with, with popular public history and how to present it. So I was watching that wall when I came in this morning uh, um, before I went to the front desk, and I... I think you did a great job because it does exactly that. I'll have to confess that it it hasn't worked. And and one of the main reasons is I shouldn't be telling these things. But but no, this this is why people listen. You get get to hear the secrets behind everything. Exactly. Uh, When when we were designing the building, we had wanted that corridor to be kind of its separate place so that as people entered, they would understand, oh, the exhibit's beginning. Mm -hmm. This is actually the first part of the exhibit. And at the end of the exhibit, we have actual uh, notes from a sermon given by Jesse Townsend, the Presbyterian minister in Palmyra, that uh, that Joseph Smith's mother and brothers probably actually heard in October of, of 1819. But the way it ends up, like today, you were sitting in a lobby waiting for me to come, and, and people just see that awakening wall not as part of the exhibit. You know, they think it maybe it's kind of an advertisement, or they, they don't understand that that's really where the exhibit begins. Mm-hmm. So people stopping for 30 seconds or 40 seconds and pondering that message and be, being able to make the connection to the next part of the museum mm-hmm. hasn't worked as well as 
So a neon arrow start here might be the yeah yeah it's uh, the solution to that. So those those are problems that uh, you know when you do a museum, one of the things that they got right in Springfield, the Presidential Museum, is that they designed all of the stories and all the exhibit uh, basic patterns before they designed the building. So then then the architects that created the building built around the storyline. But here, we had an existing physical space, you know, with walls where they're at. And, you know, we, we had to accommodate the story to the physical space. We, we had it backwards. And this was a casualty of that problem. You know, we had to have a lobby. We had to have an open place. Mm-hmm. We didn't have room for the awakening. We could not throw the awakening out. We had to have something. So it ended up being perceived by visitors as part of the lobby when we were hoping that wouldn't be the perception. So for all our listeners, when they come to visit the museum here in Salt Lake, take note yes, yes. that the wall with yes. the vignettes is the beginning of the story. Right. So when you were making the decisions on what to include and what not to include, was there anything that came under debate? Was there anything that some people really wanted to include and others didn't that we were uncertain? I think there was a broad basic consensus that we wanted to tackle topics in in church history that in the last 20, 30 years had kind of been forgotten or or neglected. Uh, Things like seer stones, uh, things like uh, the plural marriage. Plural marriage has always been associated with Mormonism, but probably more in the pioneer period in Utah, not necessarily the restoration period in Kirtland and certainly Nauvoo. Uh, We wanted to talk about kind of the, the political sociodynamics that, that lay behind a lot of the persecution that early church members faced. You know, th- things like that, that people didn't necessarily uh, receive in, in, in church history sites or, or church curriculum as it had, say, been reading it for the last 20, 30 years. No, I, I think it's really interesting. Uh, I, was, I was a child in the 1960s, um, born in the late 1950s, and the LDS Church really didn't explode internationally. I mean, it always had an international dimension. But the, the membership didn't totally start to change until the mid to late 70s, early 1980s. So in the 60s, when I was a child growing up, most Latter-day Saints were generally aware of, of polygamy. Uh, they were aware of the cultural tensions uh, in Nauvoo and in Missouri. They, they had a greater awareness of restoration history because I guess maybe we were closer to it. Uh, we had ancestors that were part of that story. You know, most of us, many of us were from polygamous families at some point back a couple of generations earlier. And we just seemed to be more generally aware. But that those kinds of assumptions that, that people understood that background of their church can't be made today. You know, you know people born since the 1980s, uh, when curriculums kind of took for granted that there was this kind of base knowledge of church history. And that assumption was the wrong assumption to make because uh, there was amnesia from, from the 1980s up, up through the, the 2000s. And, and, and many church, many people joined the church without knowing about seer stones, without knowing about uh, polygamy, without knowing about uh, theocracy and those kinds of tensions. And, I think it ambushed a lot of older people, my generation and older, to realize that you had all of these Latter-day Saints growing up without that 
foundational knowledge that you assumed, and now they're learning it later in life, and they feel ambushed. So bringing those stories back, you know, in into the into the history of the church was very important for for people younger than me. <laughs> well, so bringing it back into the dialogue of identity. Correct. Yes. Correct. Yeah. Correct. Um, Community of Christ has worked to do the same thing to make sure that we understand a broader perspective of our you history. Know, I, I think that that's an interesting point because in in the 1960s, I knew about the reorganized Church of Jesus Christ of Latter-day Saints. I knew about Joseph Smith III and Emma having broken from Brigham Young. Mm-hmm. I knew about this tradition. Uh, sadly, some of us because we were. We were competitors. Yes. I mean, we, there, there wasn't there wasn't a lot of love lost in, in uh, the early part of the 20th century between the two traditions. Then in the 1960s, you get this uh, this thawing, this, this ending of the Cold War, at least among the intellectuals and among among church leaders. I, and I think among the his, history departments, correct, led kind of led that were the forefront of it. Right. So afterward, you know where. The, uh, the LDS and the RLDS aren't necessarily seeing themselves as, as, as enemies with each other. At least on the LDS side, that kind of awareness of the RLDS tradition disappeared. You know, it, it's another example of this kind of historical amnesia. And, you know, it, one of the things we felt strongly about in the museum exhibit is we had to recapture that understanding of for LDS members that there are multiple traditions that came out of the Restoration. That had once been known in my generation, and it had been kind of forgotten in subsequent generations. So in the museum here, you know, when we get to the to the 1840s and the Nauvoo period, you know, it was very important that we help our primary audience, LDS church members, rediscover the dysphoria of, of different uh, LDS traditions. Now, you know, any informed Christian needs to, regardless of what their denomination or, or, or brand of Christianity is, they need to understand on some basic level the divisions within Christianity. The same would be true of any Muslim. You know, they, 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 they need to understand the, the division between Sunni and Shiite or, or whatever the, 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 the evolution of their religious tradition. Same with the Jews. Well, same with Latter-day Saints. So, for example, we, we, needed, we, we put on a, a, a nice map that shows the different kind of geographical locations and put up a few faces because it's always important to tie a concept with a person and a face and a name when it comes to public history and to show Latter-day Saints today that, oh, we're not the only ones. You know, Emma didn't come west. She stayed with her son. And and the other big group of, of, of LDS tradition, which is now the Community of Christ, you know, was based in the Midwest, mm-hmm. and they're still very much part of the religious scene. And there were others, too, and, and they weren't quite as successful over time as the other two traditions. But you should know about Lyman White. Lyman White. You should yeah. know about Sidney Rigdon mm-hmm. uh, back in Pennsylvania. Strang. You should know about uh, Strang yeah. and the Strangites. Yeah. Fabulous so story. Th- th- there's an example of, of one aspect of church history that had kind of been lost over 30, 40 years that we wanted to bring back and make Latter-day Saints more aware of again of the bigger picture of this mm-hmm. whole tradition when we went through the museum last time i was here you also pointed out in the kirtland exhibit a window that's there tell us a little bit about that yeah that goes back to the 60s when when i was a child and so this is all secondhand okay and i wish this is where we we really need uh, 
uh, Locke with us because he would know all about this. But back in the 60s, I guess there was a renovation community of Christ, then the RLDS church made with the Kirtland Temple, and they they needed to take the old original windows out for climate control and and preservation. And the community, well, the the, the community of Christ, the reorganized church, which it was then, Uh were gracious enough to make available to the Salt Lake Church some of the original windows that Brigham Young and others had actually worked on. And they had been, you know, out here in Salt Lake since the 1960s. And the renovation gave us a wonderful opportunity to really showcase one of the original Kirtland Temple windows in in a facade where we tell the story of of the Kirtland Temple. And we have uh, the reorganized church, the community of Christ, to thank for making that available for us out here in Utah. Are there other pieces of the story, um, artifacts, photos, that kind of thing, from Community of Christ that you would have liked to include? Uh, well, that's, I, we, I'd, I'd like all of the seer stones that they've got from the Whitmer family. And that's, no, a, a, anything, anything. Yeah, fair enough. That's, Absolutely. But, you know, we, we've, always, we've been grateful to people like Locke, and to people like Ron Romick, and the people before them who are such wonderful custodians of our shared heritage. And, you know, we really see that collaborative partnership and, and hope it will continue. Um, and, you know, a lot of those things, they should be seen in Kirtland. They should be seen in Independence. They should be seen uh, in those places where the community of Christ have preserved them. And uh, that's where we should go see them. And so I guess I'll dip tact- tactfully say that uh, no, I'm, I'm not going to covet <laughs> Thou shalt not covet thy neighbor's seer stone. Yeah. <laughs> Absolutely. Have you been to the temple in Independence of the Media Christ? I have. Uh, and, and again, the openness of the archives to research, very, very welcome. And, and Ron and, and Locke made available. I was able to look at the Whitner, Whitmer family seer stones. They brought them out. I was able to see them. Uh, they've always been very gracious. And it's was a wonderful place to, to, to do research. And the temple itself, I can remember going there not long after it was actually constructed and, and having a formal tour and uh, you know, having the explanation of the Nautilus shell and, and, and the worldwide outreach of the Community of Christ ministry. It was, it was a nice educational experience for me. I, I would have been a, a, that would have been back when I was a, in law, a, a lawyer. So that was, I learned a lot, you know, from that visit and subsequent. And we've made some additions and renovations. So the next time you're in town. Oh, I hope to be there in September. And come so. and see and walk the labyrinth that's now on the rooftop oh, of my the word. building. Okay. Yeah. So we talked earlier uh, or mentioned that the history departments, uh, LDS History Department and Community of Christ, formerly RLDS History Department, have been in this kind of continued dialogue and what I would deem a productive relationship for several decades now. What kind do you hope can be accomplished by interaction in the area of church? Sharing of resources, sharing of sources. Uh, everybody benefits by a better understanding of other people. Um, so I, I would hope to see more of the same and, and no regression and... Uh, just respect and and mutual cooperation going forward as it has been. Broaden where we um, have been talking. To. Because we share a founding a narrative and because we have been cooperating in this way, we 
learn about our shared story, about the nature of community? Great question. Uh, The quest for a utopia, the quest to create a Zion community, a Zion world, Zion city, a Zion church, is very hard and fraught with uh, difficulties and is unattainable in, in this mortality. But I think the LDS tradition, you know, being founded in the quest to create Zion and to prepare for the second coming and to create a, a society worthy and, and ready to accept the Savior and, and to help uh, help in that ministry sets all of us up with a with a kind of uh, goal or, or, or lofty aim that is unattainable, which is going to create frustrations and yet is necessary and and, and the goal always needs to be sustained. And, and I think both of our traditions, which, which originated in that shared tradition, and, and both, of, both the community of Christ and the LDS Church continue to this day in their way to, to try to duplicate, to replicate this creation of Zion. And with all of its frustrations, with all of its the fraught difficulties that come with it, and and sharing those experiences and understanding you know, different perspectives, you know, it, it's a noble goal, and we should continue to do it. And we're getting ever closer, and the world's a better place for it. Um, but we can take heart as we look at each other's experiences that uh, even when failures come, e- even even when we don't reach our ideals, uh, it need not be something that deflates us or, or, or makes us turn away from the desire and the goal uh, to create a Zion world. And, you know, I, I just think uh, being aware, you know, an LDS person like me, being aware of the challenges and the experiences that the community of, of Christ has experienced in that way helps me to put a better perspective on, on my own personal and, and my church's experiences. And, and I think uh, vice versa, that the community of Christ people can can learn and, and take heart from the successes and the failures uh, on the LDS. So, you know, we're, we're both trying to create Zion, and it's hard. <laughs> it is. We talked about that uh, before we began recording about, uh, about that experience. So before uh, we close our conversation, I just wanted to ask you, um, did we miss anything? Is there anything you'd like to share about the museum or about visiting the museum? No, I, I hope that uh, people from the Community of Christ tradition w- would feel welcomed, that they'll recognize a lot of the story, and that uh, even though the interpretation of the story will be different in many aspects from the Community of Christ tradition, they'll, they'll still uh, come away with, with a positive feeling uh, and, and an understanding of their Western LDS Brighamite cousins. I, I hope we've created a an exhibit that allows for that kind of takeaway for for that particular group and community. Well, I know my experience in touring the museum was a positive experience. And as you say, we have different perspectives on the story, but we do share it as part of our common understanding. And because of that, I want to thank you, uh, Brian or Dr. Andresen. <laughs> for being willing to visit with us here on Project Zion. This is a wonderful place to visit, and I want to, again, encourage our listeners, if you are in Salt Lake City, um, take some time to visit the museum, just as uh, Brian has taken time out of his busy summer schedule to visit with us 
day. So there is a scripture that I will paraphrase since I don't have my Community of Christ Doctrine and Covenants handy, but I do believe it was uh, Wallace B. Smith, who was then the prophet president of uh, the RLDS Church, who said that Zion is as near or as far away as the spiritual condition of God's, and I think we experienced it here today. So thank you. Thank you, Karen. Thanks for listening to Project Zion Podcast. Subscribe to our podcast on Apple Podcast, Stitcher, or whatever podcast streaming service you use. And while you are there, give us a five-star rating. Project Zion Podcast is sponsored by Latter-day Seeker Ministries of Community of Christ. The views and opinions expressed in this episode are of those speaking and do not necessarily reflect the official policy or position of Latter-day Seeker Ministries or Community of Christ. The music has been graciously provided by Dave Hines. Dave Hines